Welcome, Dr. Alan Solomon. How are you doing? I have to tell everybody and listening that Dr. Alan Solomon represents to me wisdom. So when I was in a tither about a month ago or about three weeks ago, I said, I'm going to call Dr. Alan Solomon. <laughs> he can get me back on track. And he did. It was a great consultation. So I just really feel like I want to share his wisdom and the queries about what paths do you take or do you have to face when you're 65 plus? Uh, I don't know about you, Dr. Solomon. I'm going to ask you in a moment what your journey was into the age that you are at. Maybe you'll share that with us. <laughs> but uh, I found that I had a perfect set of tools to walk me through all the way up to retirement and then retirement, which I'm not going to do for another seven years, suddenly was like, what? Well, WTF is the way I would say it. What is this going to look like? What is this about? And then with COVID and getting the COVID and facing death and having friends face death, it's like, you know, I can't ignore that transitioning to this next phase of life has issues and dramas and needs that are unlike any other era in our life. And so Dr. Alan Solomon, you are one of our path pathfinders. You're my, you're my lead hiking man for right now today. So you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you're on this walk yourself? Well, first of all, Dr. Francis, uh, I prefer to call you Carol, but please do. <laughs> it's a, it's a pleasure for me to be with you on, on your Thank podcast. You. I've known about your podcast for many years. Right. You know, and this, is, this is the first opportunity for me to actually participate with you. Um, my chance to renew my collegial relationship with you about a month or so ago was very special. Oh, um, thank you. It's really very sweet to, to have the chance to renew our acquaintance and find out, find out where you were at this point in your life. Mm -hmm. um, where I am is I am roughly 10 years past that 65 cutoff point. Um, Just and, roughly. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've been practicing, really, I've completed my PhD in 1978. So I have been doing this work for 44 years at this point and um, still meaningful. Um, and still gratifying. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing less of it than I used to do. I just have somewhat less time, certainly less energy than I did 15, 20 years ago. Um, but it's something I want to continue to do. I do not see myself stopping um, at any point in the foreseeable future. So that's one indication of how rewarding and gratifying it continues to be. And very stimulating. You know, it really keeps me alert and engaged with the world, with a wide range of people in the world. Um, and I have to remain you know, sharp and attentive in the work that I'm trying to do with clients. So it is, continues to be a very special part of my life, so. Do you ever wonder when being a dinosaur is something you have to face and that you become extinct? Um, I work with children, I work with teenagers, I work with adults of all ages and couples and talk about a broad range of where they're at versus where I'm at. And a broad range also of a totally different society with uh, societal technology, but also verbiage, attitude, morals, moral compass. So when, at what point do we say, okay, okay I'm, I'm aging out of this when, when do we it, do that? And when does anybody decide I'm aging out of my profession? It becomes increasingly challenging and difficult. Yeah. The more that I work with young children and adolescents to try to stay somewhat current, you know, and have some real appreciation of what their world is like and what their lives are like. So one of the examples, you know, I can think of very quickly is how kids absorb information nowadays. So much of it is from the internet, one source or another, um, and not all of that are reliable sources of information, <clears throat> you know, for one thing, um, but it sure is different than reading a newspaper or going on to television and watching, you know, one of the all news cable channels and to stay current with, with all of that, what kids are exposed to in terms of cultural information. And um, one of the impacts of that for, for young girls, especially, is all of the pressure that girls feel regarding issues of food and, and their body image. 
And there's been a huge increase in young girls who are experiencing, you know, eating disorders and, and have confusion about their own body image. And I think a lot of that is internet fueled and internet intensified. And so to, to try to stay attuned to those kinds of pressures that kids are experiencing is, is it's fascinating and enriching and, and very challenging at times. Um, well, you'll see the image behind me here is a dedication to the Ukrainian refugees. And maybe by the time someone's listening to the YouTube or to the podcast, that situation is resolved. We hope it's resolved in terms of saving Ukraine, as I think they fight for the freedom of all of us to not have bullies bully us into submission. We don't know how that outcome is going to be. And I think that when you talk about this generation, this generation faces an era of bullying that's different. They also face an era of powerlessness and powerfulness because they have more power than they've ever had, but they also still feel like I'm such a small person in this great vast world of, of internet. So I think that that same topic I faced when I called you and said, I'm walking into a sense of powerlessness as I age. You know, am I powerless over making my body youthful? You know, this whole industry of agelessness. Am I powerless against, you know, a certain demises of my well-being? Am I powerless against death? You know, I guess if we're lucky to live over 65, death is likely to come because we're aging as opposed to accident or a disease, although aging and disease are hand in hand. So that powerlessness is, is part of our life for no matter what age we're at. But what is the roadmap for dealing with that sense of powerlessness? Well, you know, what, what, yeah, one, as, one aspect of the roadmap is to stay engaged, is to continue to be open to learning um, and even to deliberately create opportunities for learning. Um, because that keeps the mind, you know, stimulated and keeps your mind growing. One of the biggest findings in neurological research over the last 20, 25 years is the whole concept of neuroplasticity. And what plasticity means in this context is that the brain is capable of generating new connections between the nerve cells in the brain, really right up to the very end of life. Yeah. Our brain has that kind of flexibility and capacity. So I remember reading a really nice op-ed piece in the New York Times several years ago with a, a, written by a man who was about 60. And at 60 years old, he decided to take up tennis for the very first time in his life. And he took some lessons because he wanted to really go about it in an intentional and deliberate way. And he wrote about it as forcing his body and his mind to learn new skills mm -hmm. and that that was an anti-aging formula because as long as you're learning and developing new connections with some set of skills then you are helping your brain and your mind to continue to expand and make new connections and that helps to counteract some of the inevitable aspects of aging uh, so so it really is you know a considerable contribution to, to staying young, um, you know, and uh, being vital throughout much, much of your life. <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> there we go. You know, it's, um, it, 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 so let's talk about the body. You know, we talked about mind-body connection, mm -hmm. mind-body-soul connection or spirit connection uh, it, at any age, any understanding, whether you're a child to old and um, the, the body is the thing that, that lets us know we are truly aging. This is truly a shift. And as much as I look at all the industry, beauty industry, what products are going to keep the wrinkles off my skin? What products are going to keep grays out of my hair? It's like this like obsession with youthfulness or how do I keep a, a body that looks like I'm 20, which is not healthy for one thing. I have people that I know that are trying to lose weight. And they end up causing a comp series of complications for themselves because their body is just thrown into disequilibrium. Uh, so it's like this very tenuous relationship that we have with our body 
and our sense of self-esteem for women, but our sense of empowerment and mobility for men and women. And um, so let's talk about the psychology of body and aging for a moment, if you don't mind. Well, the sense of self-esteem for women is so critical. There's so many pressures on women about appearance and about being youthful and also being, you know, physically attractive, sexual and sensual, you know, as well. But men have those issues too about being able to remain somewhat youthful and to maintain, you know, their physical appearance, but also their, their levels of energy, you know, and the vigor with which they can live their lives. Um, it's ironic you brought that up because just yesterday I was on the Peloton that we have at home. We have a spinning cycle at home, you know, with the videos that go along with it. And the guy who was leading the spinning class that I was taking was talking about making accommodations in your training regimen as you age. And that some of the goals, you know, have to be adjusted and what the expectations are have to be adjusted. And that's an inevitable part of aging. Um, And yet you can continue to stay committed and stay engaged and get a, so much benefit out of a regular exercise regimen, um, you know, no matter how old you are. Um, and that helps to you know, sustain the body as long as we can sustain it you know, through healthy kinds of choices. So the, the mindset of, I now have to deal with my body differently than I ever have, really shouldn't be new to us because as we go along any phase, we really do have a new body. So whether we're paying attention to it or not, but when the body begins to break down and then how do we, that's when we, oh, I have to pay attention to this body. So, I mean, I'm just going to give an example. I'd like to hear some of your examples. So I now have to do exercises before I get out of bed. Whereas before pop out of bed and do whatever and go for a jog and running is not in the motif anymore. So I have to do exercises to get out of bed, to align my body, to wake up my muscles, to make sure that the systems are going. Otherwise, I have this extreme imbalance and pain. And I'm going, what is this about? And so to have that mindset of we have to adjust and embrace the intensity of whatever we face. Okay, so I guess that doesn't work anymore to go jogging. Now, what do I do? I guess that doesn't work to pop out of bed and do whatever. Now, now what do I do? It's like being that, okay, you look like you have some thoughts on this, so go for it. I, I do have a lot of thoughts about it. You know, I have my own personal experience in December of 2016 and then really into January of 2017, I began experiencing severe back pain, severe back pain. And after a few weeks of being the typical tough guy who wouldn't give in, um, I went to an orthopedic specialist who, you know, did a bunch of diagnostic tests and basically came back and told me I had degenerative disc disease, which is not an unusual thing for people at this age. Not. Um, and, you know, I went through a procedure with him, which was an injection into my spine that relieved some of the, the, the inflammation and some of the pain. And then I had to go through a course of physical therapy. Meanwhile, I gave, had to give up my practice of yoga. Oh, I had been practicing yoga for over 10 years at that point on a weekly basis. I just couldn't tolerate it because of the pain. I was being woken up in the middle of the night with pain. Um, Fortunately, I made the choice not to attempt any pain medications because of all the risks of addiction. Um, But over the course of five months or so, you know, I went through the injection. I went through a rigorous course of physical therapy. I was able to resume yoga at a very elementary level, different at level begin, at a beginning level, which I did for the next three months before I went back to the intermediate level that I had been previously practicing. But I couldn't practice in quite the same way that I had been doing mm-hmm. earlier. Also, yoga has become an absolute necessity for me to keep my back in re- relatively stable condition with minimal amounts of pain or manageable amounts of pain. I just have to practice yoga on a very regular basis, do a lot more stretching. Mm -hmm. I live with, you know, a nightly regimen of sitting with an ice pack on my back, Mm -hmm. you know, while I watch an episode of something with my wife, you know, I'm I'm sitting with ice. Um, It's all these adjustments that I've had to make in order to help myself continue to function. 
know, when you say that, it, it reminds me of just having gotten through the Super Bowl and watching people with their ice packs and their, their physical therapists on the field taking care of them <laughs> immediately. Lucky them. Yeah. You know, in a sense, we've been athletes for all these decades. And now our body is saying, okay, enough already. You need to treat me differently. So I guess if I have that mindset, I'm a little happier with, with having to deal with it as opposed to I'm getting old, I'm dying, I'm losing function. I you know all that negative self-talk around it, which is very real, valid, but it's not the mindset that's going to make me do as more than I used to, to keep less functionality than I used to. It's, it's, it's like a diminishing return. So I have to work more. I now work 90 minutes out every day. Whereas before 45 minutes would have done it. <laughs> it's like, and it's different exercises. And so, it is, it is being willing to devote a considerable amount of additional time to trying to maintain your well-being, and acknowledging that unfortunately that's an inevitable part of being moving into your sixties or into your seventies or eighties you know, and that physicians, healthcare professionals of some sort or other are also going to become a more regular part of your life. Lovely. And how important it is, you know, to find skilled, caring, capable healthcare professionals. Mm. And think about it as you're building a relationship with someone who's going to be important to you in one way or another as the years go on um, and devoting the time and energy and, and some resources in order to do that. So this is, this is team consciousness now. We're, we're no longer independent and self-reliant. It's team consciousness we're talking about, which is another aspect of growing old is who's my team now? How do I, how do I get my people around that I can do the things I can't do as easily so I can live a quality of life? Tell me about that team building for you and the people that you love, like your wife. You don't have to talk about your wife in specific, but you know, you're not building a team only for you. You have a team for everybody you're still responsible for, or you're still involved with. Well, yeah. And if you have a primary partner, and I am fortunate to be married to the same woman for many, many decades now, you know, um, then that that's kind of the, the, the core. That's one of the first steps of building a team, of maintaining a team, and especially if that relationship hopefully continues to be genuinely, you know, intimate and truly emotionally caring. Um, which is so helpful with, with for all of us as we age. And then, you know, there's, there's having good friendships is so important. Um, if you have children, you'll be able to have a constructive and supportive relationship with your kids as they move into adulthood. Hopefully they are, you know, self-sufficient and, and capable adults themselves. Um, and then they can begin to lend support, you know, as we all age. Um, and then there, there are all these healthcare professionals of one sort or another, whether it's a physician, having a good dentist is so important as we age, you know, if it's a chiropractor um, or someone who does, you know, body work of some sort, uh, the yoga instructor that I practiced with was a genius. She was incredibly talented and contributed so much to my well-being in those weekly yoga sessions. So it's that that whole team is, is crucial to our well-being. Okay, so I'm going to pretend then as I get older that I'm a, a football star and that I just have a team of wonderful people on the field <laughs> because I've been working hard as I get older that, that it has to be that sense of, well, I've, I've earned the team now. I don't have to be independent and self-reliant. Like you said a moment ago, like a typical man, I don't want to go in and admit that I'm in pain. I think it's a typical whatever. I don't want to admit that I'm getting old physically. Okay, so you mentioned your wife as well, and um, not to get personal with your life, but this is all about being personal as you get older, and that's the intimate side of life. And, um, you know, it's going to be different for women who are widowed, which is more common, uh, people who are divorced and single, people who are married, people who are caretaking for their spouse, or people who are being caretaken by their spouse or their loved one. So intimacy is an interesting interplay, even a conceptualization where I know men and women in their 90s that are still getting it on. <laughs> Take it away. What, what do you want to say about this? Well, it's, it's possible to be sexually active, you know, well, well into 70s, 80s, even 90s. You know, it's a question of continuing to make 
engage that part of yourself, you know, with a partner. It's also again a question of flexibility that what someone is capable of sexually in their 20s and 30s and 40s is not the same as what they're capable of later in life, you know, and being able to be flexible about that and be creative with your partner because it's really all about, you know, giving and receiving pleasure and having that experience of a very close caring that you can have that way. You know, the, the, there's a, a pair of psychologists up in the Seattle area called the Gottmans, John and Cheryl, I think is their first name. And they have done some landmark research on marital therapy and marital relationships. Um, and they talk about intimacy as having the knowledge of a, your partner's inner life. Hmm and curiosity about your partner's inner life and, and vice versa. So it comes down to sm seemingly small things like who is your partner's best friend? You know, what is your partner's favorite color? Um, how do they like to prepare certain dishes or eat certain foods? What are some of their best memories? Some of their worst memories? What do you know about their family history and their family background? You know, What's their greatest strength and talent, as well as areas where they struggle? It's that kind of very intimate, special knowledge that you develop with a partner. They did a fascinating piece of research where they took, they asked for couples who identified themselves as in a satisfying marriage of 15 years or more. So these were folks who had you know, a pretty long-standing relationship. They asked these people to come into a special apartment that they outfitted with video equipment in the living area and in the kitchen area, not in the bedroom and not in the bathroom. So the couple had some areas of privacy for a, an extended weekend. Wow. And they, they videotaped their interactions huh. over that weekend. Wow, that's great. And what they found with these couples who identified themselves as being satisfied is that the ratio of positive to negative interactions was five to one or better. Or better. So for every negative interaction, there were at least five positive interactions between these partners. Mm -hmm. And that's the process by which they developed that kind of intimacy of knowing each other in this very private, special close way. I think this is, uh, I mean, I say this to parents about children. I say this to couples all the time, no matter what their age is, that this five to one ratio, it cannot be uh, underrated. Can you give examples of five to one type conversations that promote intimacy? Yeah. And that's one of the fascinating things is because it isn't only the obvious things you might say to your partner that are positive and constructive, like, you know, gee, you look nice today, for example, or, oh, that was a really interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that situation in the way you just described it. So you acknowledge the person's intelligence and their ability to express themselves well. But it's also very subtle things. Like when your partner is talking to you, do you turn your body to face them? or do you turn your body away from them? Um, do you make That's eye contact? Sense. Do you make eye contact or do you cut off eye contact? Do you look at them with a facial expression that shows you know, warmth and interest, like, like a smile, you know, instead of a neutral expression or instead of a scowl or something that's not friendly? So they were picking up on a lot of very subtle behavioral nonverbal kinds of cues that people give each other all the time as being extremely powerful and examples of this positive to negative, you know, kind of ratio. Do you feel that there are certain topics that couples should intimately talk about that is specific to after their 65 versus before um, that couples should venture into? That's a really interesting question. Hmm. Well, uh, you know, while you're pondering that, I think one of the key questions that uh, a friend of mine faced a couple of years ago, which was, you know, how do you want to die? And a friend of mine had to face cancer, death, and his spouse. 
Um, and how do you want to die was something they did talk about and they openly did it. And then of course with cancer and the end stages of it, you know, how do we go about the end, the procedures of that? What are our options in the state of California? Of course, that's going to be different to the state that you're in. You know, what, what, what is that all about? So that's a, a tricky one, not one I like to talk about. We, we probably should have that conversation at any point in time in our life, but it really kind of hangs over us after 65. That's after 65, yeah. And, and certainly when one of the partners, one of the partners is facing a, a, a very significant diagnosis, you know, if it's, if it's a cancer diagnosis, let's say, or some other diagnosis uh, that, that isn't necessarily terminal. Let's say you have a, diabos- a di- diagnosis of diabetes you know, that you have to deal with and, and you have to live with diabetes and make a lot of adjustments in order to try to stay as healthy as you can and to have a conversation with your partner about the choices that are now facing each person, you know, uh, including not just the person with a diagnosis, but the caregiver. You know, and how much care are they going to be involved with? Mm-hmm. You know, and what kind of care do they bring in, perhaps, from other professionals or paraprofessionals or other family members? You know, and how do you tackle all of those very serious questions? Mm-hmm. Requires an ongoing dialogue between two people. Well, we're being kind of idealistic here, Alan. And now, Dr. Sullivan. <laughs> Alan's <laughs> Dr. Alan Solomon. We are here with Dr. Alan Solomon. And if you want to contact him, how should they contact you? Let's get that going for a moment. Um, well, I'm part of the website. They could find me there. It's called therapynla.com. Yeah. It's all spelled out in lowercase letters. So that's an easy place to make contact with me. There's a little bit of a profile about my work and some of my training and how I go about working with clients. So that's probably the easiest way that people can find me. So say it one more time. Therapynla.com. Dr. Alan Solomon, A L A N Solomon, S O L O M O N. So we're kind of being idealistic because most couples, by the time that they're in their 65s, they're persnickety, they're antagonistic, they're wounded, they're irritated, they're done with the partner, they're bored, they're in pain. And so, and then, then everybody shows up with their level of, um, resistance and stubbornness and not wanting to face things. And so here we're talking about the five to one ratio. I mean, if your relationship has been based on the five to positive one negative relationship for decades, I think maybe this would work pretty well, but how do you transition from a persnickety antagonistic, bitter relationship that's now entering into, Oh, gee, it's almost too late to get a divorce kind of mentality or do we live in separate homes? We live in separate bedrooms. We live in separate, we are separate, et cetera, et cetera. How do we talk about intimacy, sexual, spiritual, physical, emotional, mental intimacy uh, when you're really talking about damage, damaged situations? It so depends on each person's individual well-being that an individual is willing to confront the challenges and the issues that they have in their life, you know, and that as an individual, they're willing and able to continue their own path of growth, you know, and development. So that if they are persnickety by the time they're 65 or so, you know, that hopefully there's some willingness that the person has to look at themselves and realize I'm becoming pretty persnickety. This is not, this is not working. This is not working for my partner, for my family members, for my friends, for my professional colleagues. And most important, it's not working for me. Mm. I'm ending up grumpy and I'm ending up unhappy over small things that are irritating me to no end. You know, So I'm suffering. And do I want to continue to suffer or can I engage in some work of some sort You know, to, to try to find some pathway through this, some alternative path for myself. So the idea that in order to have an intimate relationship as we go old, we have to have a quality intimate relationship with ourselves. We talked about our bodies first, 
but now you're talking about with your own self-awareness and then how would you recommend a person go about grooming no longer investing in entitlement or bullishness or cockiness or uh, autonomy negativity you know or depression sadness weakness powerlessness i mean we can go all over the map on this or nervous and worried and hypochondriacal or you know whatever is there thing how do, how do you recommend for a person over 65 to still be growth minded about their relationship with themselves well hopefully the relationship with themselves has been growth minded all along before they not, get to 65 but if, if not, not if not then it's very likely they're going to confront a crisis that there's probably going to be some kind of a crisis that's going to unfold in their life mm-hmm. um, and my office partner of, of 30 years before he retired one of his first questions to many of his clients was what's the most important relationship you have in your life and many people would say well it's my partner or it's my children or it's my parents or it's my friends and his response was no the most important relationship in your life is the relationship you have with yourself uh. because you are with yourself 24 mm-hmm. 7 even when you're sleeping you are with yourself if only in the form of dreams that can wake you up you know and be disturbing so it is that relationship with yourself as someone who has neglected that relationship with themselves and they end up persnickety and difficult circumstances somewhere around this age of 65, they're probably going to face a crisis. Something in their life is going to break down. Mm-hmm. And that is painful and scary and can be very depressing, but it's also an opportunity. It's it's a message that we get that, you know, hey, it's time to wake up and pay attention to some things in some different ways. Well, certainly my contacting you a month ago was, I got to wake up, you know, this is, I'm I'm facing issues that I'm not used to facing. I've got to wake up here and I've got to take my path clearly (laughs) differently than what I've ever understood that I needed to do. So now we, we take that path. I, I do a lot of trauma work. You know, Ukrainians are going through trauma. I dealt with soldiers, abuse victims, uh, molestations, um, of course, all the healthcare workers and secondary traumatic exposures, tra- secondary, uh, you know, traumatic illnesses, traumatic injuries. So I deal a lot with frontline trauma, second line trauma. I think maybe getting this trauma experience of aging that you're talking about is a whole nother level of trauma. Something is going to happen to them. That's going to wake them up. And so that's a kind of a trauma. It's a wake up call. And now we talk about recovery, recovery from that trauma in a way that puts you into a growth mindedness. So what are some, some of the steps let's get very practical. Some of the steps of recovering from a trauma related to aging? Well, the, the first step is to acknowledge that there has been a trauma. Yes. Rather yes. than pretend as though nothing all that dramatic has happened, but to acknowledge that there's been a trauma of some sort. And it is really destabilizing and really disorganizing and sometimes can be very overwhelming. And with that acknowledgement, then hopefully there's a readiness and a willingness to, to seek some help. Because as my therapist said to me many years ago, which I didn't like to hear, but she said to me, nobody heals by themselves. Mm. You know, and I I was Mm. more in my late 30s, early 40s. I was in that stage of my life as a man that I thought I can handle just about anything myself. Thank you very much. I don't want to have to depend on anyone. Mm -hmm. Well, no, you know, it's Mm. to acknowledge that we all need help and support when there's been a trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, and to seek that help and support, whether it's through, you know, therapy and counseling, whether it's through spiritual exploration and developing a relationship in a spiritual sense with God or a higher power or the universe or nature, however we all might conceive of that, 
you know, physical activity and physical exercise to maintain your health and physical health and well-being as much as you can. You know, those kinds of steps are so crucial. Mm-hmm. What do you think about when we get older that we actually enter into potential additional 30 years of, of I, I look at, I look at, at the third, the last third of life, if we're lucky to get past 65, the last third of life as an opportunity for a whole nother career, mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a career of all sorts of different things. What do you think about part of the retrauma, trauma recovery of aging is waking up to a, oh, I guess I'm, I have a whole nother career ahead of me, a whole nother me, a whole nother intellectual thing, a whole nother intimate relationship with other people. I have a whole nother me to create as opposed to just trudge along with. It can be a career, especially if you use career in the more general sense. It isn't necessarily a professional commitment that you go to a job, Hmm. you know, not nine to five or some kind of a work schedule. It can be various kinds of commitments for meaningful activity um, and having that, having a sense of meaning and purpose um, that involves a process of learning, that involves taking in new information, developing new skills, having to develop new relationships in in your life. Um, Because then that goes back to the neuroplasticity that our brains are capable of all kinds of new connections if we put ourselves in those situations that Mm -hmm. we have the opportunity. So a friend of ours um, was a, a very successful attorney for more than 30 years here in Los Angeles. He was a litigation lawyer. That was his specialty, which meant he was in high pressure, high high stress situations where the stakes were enormous, usually in the entertainment industry. So, you know, the the settlements in cases were multi-millions of dollars. He retired from being a lawyer and he'd already had some things that he was interested in, which he then expanded. So he also meditates on a daily basis. He has a, about a 15-year meditation practice at this point. Mm-hmm. He's good at woodworking, has some tools and equipment in his garage to do woodworking. Um, he loves to read. He joined the Plato Society at UCLA, which is a study group for people 55 years and older. Um, got very involved in seminars that they put on and put together a book club for himself and some other people who love history. This man has more activities than you could ever imagine someone would have. And um, he is so fully engaged in his life and really stimulated. Um, And a part of it is he's very social. He has all these relationships that he's interacting with, which is a very much a way to counteract some of the impact of aging. That's especially the loss of some intellectual ability because there's a lot of research that shows isolation, social isolation is one of the most damaging aspects of aging, hmm. especially for men. Men tend to be less social than women. Hmm. Men tend to withdraw into a more isolated, lonely life and it's very damaging to their emotional well-being and their intellectual well-being also. So I always think of this friend as a great example of someone who has aged, you know, very very well. He's in his mid 70s now. And he's been he's been retired for almost 10 years. Wow. Just loving his retirement. That's wonderful. Okay, so what other tools do you recommend? Cuz you just talked about this gentleman's approach. What, 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 what does, let's make this list long for a moment. Let's brainstorm, let's brainstorm together as to what this long list can be. So I, I've taken up painting. I didn't know I could paint. And now I'm doing portraits for healthcare workers. And as you can see, portraits for Ukrainians, refugees. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, oh, I'm this, ba- this, this background is your work. Oh yeah. That's my work. Oh, yeah. it's beautiful. Oh, wow. thank you. And this okay. is only part of it. Yeah. I'll send you the other part of it. <laughs> So, you know, so I do, I do portraits now for people um, and you, it's all volunteer. Uh, another thing that I do now is I do Qigong. I love Qigong. I love Qigong before, but now it's like, I need to do my Qigong as just getting the joints working. And so that's a brand new activity. Okay. Yeah, that's two of mine. What are some of yours? Okay. Well, one of my responses to the pandemic 
was that my wife, very clever and intelligent, she bought a Peloton, the spinning cycle. She bought it within two weeks of when we had the shutdown in mid-March. So we got it delivered within 10 days. It's in her office now. And I am on the Peloton three to four times a week. Beautiful. And each spinning class that I take is 30 to 45 minutes, depending on how much time I have. Um, that's more exercise than I have been getting prior. Oh. <laughs> there you go. By, by far. And it's definitely been a great help to me. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, <laughs> I'm getting exposed to music because there's music as a background to all of these classes. So I'm building these playlists of music that I like to listen to in the house. So now we have more music playing in the house oh, nice. than, I, than we used to have. Um, so that's been a recent addition. I've been reading um, consistently. Um, my wife has a brother who is a, a dual citizen of Israel and the United States. So he's living in Israel. He's attempting to write his first novel. Nice. Based on his PhD dissertation. Mm. And I read his manuscript and really enjoyed reading it, gave him a lot of feedback. So he and I now have a book club of two. Nice. And we're reading mostly fiction because he's interested in fiction at this point. And I've been reading more as a result of this. And the interaction with my brother-in-law is delightful. He's he's bright. He's analytical. He raises questions that I hadn't thought about reading whatever book we're sharing with each other. So that's been another enrichment for me. as, As I've worked somewhat less in the last few years, I'm spending more time reading you know, and, and engaging in that. I also took up the piano about five years ago. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Which is guaranteed to make me feel extremely clumsy. <laughs> yes, I know. And, and slow and dim-witted because trying to get the left hand and the right hand to do different things is incredibly challenging and difficult. Mm-hmm. Talk about neuroplasticity, right? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I keep telling myself, this is good for your brain. Don't quit. Maybe you're not making much progress. It's okay. The process is what's important. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, I actually can play something that sounds like music. (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) Along with the music that you're funneling through your house. Yeah. That's really good. Okay. So um, language, like uh, I'm going to be traveling outside the country. I'm relearning that language for that particular country. So I, I, I will go from feeling like I don't remember anything to, oh, okay, I've got some command of parts of that language. Learning another language is very important, I think. Um, what else? What else do we brainstorm? Learning, learning a language is a great exercise, yeah. you know, uh, in terms of the neuroplasticity for our brains. And mm-hmm. it's a great exercise in patience too you know, and dealing with your frustrations about how difficult it is to learn a new language. So try travel is wonderful. It's so enriching and so expanding of how we view ourselves, you know, having a, a, you know, a, a West Coast, Southern California and American perspective compared to what you see when you travel to other parts of our country, for one thing, um, much less when you travel outside the country. It's really a broadening experience. Mm-hmm. So. Let's talk about volunteer work. You know, you, we, we have this, you know, the Maslow's idea of generativity that we enter into the stage of generating now. Um, is that Maslow? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm challenging you. <laughs> but that stage of development that goes into when we generate in a very different way in our older age, because we now can give back to society and that we measure our worth or our value based on something so volunteer work uh, is often a way of saying, well, I can still generate and I can still give and I still have something to offer and I have value in what I now have to offer. What it was one of, the, was one of the stages that Eric Erickson talked oh, about. Oh, it's Eric Erickson, of course. In his developmental theory, yeah. I, I needed and that. He, and he, he described it as generativity or the alternative being stagnation if you're not able to be creative and continue to generate you know, in, in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so volunteering is one wonderful way to, to generate. So this friend that I mentioned who's a lawyer, I didn't mention, you know, another activity that he's gotten involved in is he volunteers at the Getty Museum, uh, the, the newer Getty Museum up in Sepulveda Pass. And he does, he's a docent. 
and twice a month he's up there for an afternoon giving a tour of the, of the museum oh wow which required him he had to develop his own script they gave him the materials but he had to write his own script for the tour wow that would and be then, wonderful and then revise it you know as he's practiced it and worked on it over these couple of years now before the pandemic that he was able to do it mm -hmm. so that was volunteering that he found you know very meaningful and, and enriching um, that, that some, actually some, sounds really good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, and it's a, it's a way to to learn more himself, but also he's giving back to the community. There are visitors there who come from all over the world, you know, for one thing. Um, so talk about being able to give to other people mm -hmm. in that role. It's very gratifying. There are all the other docents that he develops some relationships with, new friendships and more socializing that way as well. Mm -hmm. So volunteering is a great way to, to do that. We have a friend whose mom just passed away about two years ago. She was 89 and had lived a very full, rich life. Um, she was also a docent at the Getty hmm. and was a volunteer hmm. at the Getty up until she was about 87. Wow. When her health you know, really did begin to deteriorate and she had to cut back on some hmm. of her activities. 87. So, so that's, yeah. that's at the point where she said, I'm a dinosaur now. I can't move anymore. <laughs> yeah. I asked you that question earlier. When do we decide that we're dinosaurs and we need to like, you know, clear the path for the, the younger? So 87 was when she said, I, I think. I well, you know, I think it's something that hopefully we can all delay as long as possible. And again, make adjustments and be flexible about what activities we're capable of and what we would like to do. Um, but to be able to continue this, this woman was active like that until 87. Yeah, brilliant. Because that's movement and it's intellectual and it's social and it's giving to the community. It's just, it's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Let's talk about for a moment what it's like on one day to find I can no longer do that. Whatever the, that is, I can no longer jog. I can no longer bend over. I can no longer sit on the ground. I can no longer, no longer, no longer. Um, I can no longer play with my grandchildren that way. I can no longer. That phrase, I can no longer is uh, dangerous in my mind, because what you can't do one day can become a script for your future. Like she said at 87, I can no longer be a docent here. You know, when, when is that wisdom, but when is that you giving into something where it's, it's not that I can no longer do it. It's today. I can't do it because I haven't been doing X, Y, Z, which makes it doable. And now I need to do X, Y, Z to make it doable. So like I could not get up off the ground. So I said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do exercises where I go down on the ground and I get up and I go down on the ground and I get up and I get down on the ground, whatever way I, I, so it was like, uh, I can't do this unconsciously anymore is really what it was. I can't just pop down and pop up. So now I'm going to go down on that ground and get up, go down as a form of exercise um, and so when is, I can no longer do this actually a faulty way of saying, um, I can no longer do it unconsciously or mindlessly. So now I have to figure out how to do it mindfully. It is how to do it mindfully, you know, how to recognize that there is inevitably some loss of some functions, some loss of some abilities and capabilities, you know, whether it's physical strength or mental acuity, um, and to be able to make adjustments to, intentionally deliberately try to maintain as much of those skills as many of those skills as you possibly can you know and to be flexible about it there's an inevitable sense of loss you know and sadness and even potentially some depression there, there's some aspects of this that are, that are going to be inevitable um, because the way we are constructed as human beings is we are all going to die. There's no way around that ultimate ending. Right. No, don't say that. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> not me. That's not me. That's you. That's not, I mean, that, right. Denial, yeah. denial, 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 denial. And we're all, we're all going to be of ill health at some point in some way or other. And we can make deliberate choices to try to delay all of that, to try to minimize all of that, to enrich ourselves as much as we possibly can. Um, I wash it with my own mom. My mom made it to 90. And um, she had a cancer diagnosis 
a lung cancer diagnosis because she'd been a heavy smoker for many, many years. Mm. Um, and when she got the cancer diagnosis, she was 89 and she decided not to have treatment because that was, oh. that was, that was her choice. Yeah. What she had witnessed with my dad, her husband was that he had had treatment and the treatment had such severe side effects radiation and chemotherapy that the benefits to her didn't seem like it was worth the trade-off. So she lived a whole year with this cancer diagnosis, much longer than we had thought. And it was fascinating to watch her in the way that she was very flexible and she had to give up certain activities, you know, and certain capabilities that she lost over that period of a year. And she would talk about it and we would discuss it. She would express her sadness and her frustration, and then she would adapt in one way or another. She was so incredibly resilient. My respect for her deepened so much in the last three or four years of her life, actually, in her ability to be flexible and to make the adjustments that she needed and continue to live. So up until the cancer diagnosis, she was playing bridge two or three times a week. A bridge is a very intellectually challenging and demanding game. And it yeah. was one of the ways that she kept herself intellectually alert. Mm-hmm. So with the diagnosis, she gave up one of the bridge games. And then a few months later, she gave up the second one. Uh, she just couldn't continue to do it. So she was gradually experiencing those losses. Mm-hmm. You know, Wow. So flexibility and resilience. You've said that several times during our time together. Oh, I have to put glasses on to see what time it is. All right. See, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't have to do that before. <laughs> oh, I could say that was a comic moment, but it was a real need. <laughs> this attitude, this ability to have this attitude of resilience and self-respect and flexibility with oneself. Um, We haven't even talked about being a caregiver, which is a part of that too, but how do you develop that psychological capacity to, I need to be flexible as opposed to rigid. I need to be uh, at ease with my switches as opposed to angry or sullen or depressed. You know, how, how do you develop this new personality that doesn't fight it all the time. I remember reading the book, death, be not proud. Don't go into death calmly. And I remember in high school, memorize that poem. So I'm never going to go into death calmly. And it's like, that's, it's kind of a rigid. <laughs> so <laughs> talk to me about this. Well, that's kind of, a, you know, you're asking in a sense a corollary of the question about someone who's persnickety at 65. Yeah. You know, and whether they can make changes at that point. Hopefully a person has some resilience and some flexibility all along in their life. Well, so it's <laughs> so it a radical change that they need to make, you know, in the, the, the end stages of their life. But again, I think, you know, if, if a person is willing to engage in exploration and be open and curious about themselves, you know, and whether they pursue it through a spiritual path, there's all kinds of spiritual readings and spiritual practices that people engage in, whether they do it through developing an artistic talent like you have done with your painting, you know, as a way of truly being flexible and finding new expressions of creativity you know, the, 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 those are certainly possibilities. And then, of course, there's counseling and therapy as a way of trying to help people develop some of that resilience and flexibility within themselves. Well, here's another one of my paintings. I do sunsets, right? Beautiful landscape. Yeah. And then here's uh, some more of the healthcare workers that I've gotten to know and did their portraits. And here's a tulip. Boy, that's very different than looking at um, people from Ukraine, <laughs> it's a very different mode. So I'll kind of put that in there. Cause that's like, this is flexibility. This is, uh, this is the gentleness, right? This is the gentleness of the, appreciating that, um, you know, I'm looking at these people in Ukraine and they're walking, they're elderly out toward the paths of 
the green paths, which are getting bombed, but the elderly are, are walking out, barely able to walk. They haven't been walking. They're on walkers or on canes. They, they haven't been walking. And so here they're having to walk for their life forever. They're going to be excommunicated from their houses, bombed and destroyed. They're living in a stranger's place if they're lucky enough to get into Poland, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about having to be flexible, right? The, here they are. I, they're not even flexible enough to walk when they're going to have to have a whole nother life. That's an enormous challenge. There's yeah. no way to simplify that or try to try to discuss it in light-hearted terms. It's an enormous challenge, and people experience the entire disruption of their life. It's such a huge experience of loss in so many different ways. It's such a challenge, um, and uh, I've seen it myself in some. Holocaust survivors from the World War II Holocaust, some of whom have been able to be resilient and have, you know, meaningful lives with families of their own and professional careers of their own, um, and some of whom have been, you know, greatly damaged and had great difficulty finding resilience within themselves and flexibility. Mm -hmm. We have yeah. a, a good friend who's mom just passed away. She was 87. And her husband, our friend's father is 92. Mm. And he is a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. And one of his perspectives, he's now been living alone without his wife. They were married 70 years. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, and in living alone for the last three or four months, one of his ways of coping with this is he's, he says, don't say no. Hmm. When someone invites you to something, you say yes. Wow. No matter what it is. Mm -hmm. He went to a Super Bowl party. Good. And he's not a football fan, doesn't know anything about American football, but he went to a Super Bowl party because he was invited and it was a chance to get out and socialize and be with other people. And it's that resilience, that willingness to embrace new experiences mm -hmm. this is a this you know like uh, that getting on the floor and getting up being mindless versus mindful it's like relationships have to become mindful activities have to become mindful a deliberateness of being social has to be mindful as opposed to retreating in the comfort of your rocking chair or in my case my lounge chair so it's like you, 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 you could go toward comfort and comfort has that kind of atrophy to it that kind of sitting still to it the mind goes still we watch tv we become passive we oh it hurts too much to move so we don't move it it's just i can't think clearly therefore i'm not going to worry about thinking i can't learn this language easy therefore i can't draw a flower so why bother you know it's like that discouraging attitude, I can't, I can't, I can't, is so different than that persistence and that tenacity and that resilience you're talking about. And someone says, you know, growing old is not for the young part. <laughs> no, not for the, not for, I don't know what, you, as we exit this session here together, uh, that I hope people really have enjoyed. What are your tidbits of wisdom that, that, that little mantra that says that kicks you in the butt when all you want to do is get old and slow? Well, you know, my, <laughs> again, I think of my mom and the, the respect that I gained from the last three or four years of her life. And she used to say, which I thought was original, but it turns out it wasn't. She would say, getting old ain't for sissies. Yeah. You know, and in one context, you think about it as having to deal with health issues, you know, and having to deal with terminal, a terminal diagnosis of some sort, you know, or physical limitations. But in another sense, it's saying yes to things that instead of retreating into the comfort, you know, of your rocking chair and your regimen of daily television shows you know, and all of those areas of comfort that you venture out into the world. You know, and that you do some, you take on some experiences that are not necessarily comfortable, that are new and different and challenging and possibly difficult, but also possibly enriching mm -hmm. and really stimulating. Mm -hmm. So the awkwardness of embarrassment about all the silly things we do when we're older, you just have to say, oh, well, 
the, the sense of being a burden on others because they have to help you through something. You have to kind of say, hey, thank you. Uh, the, the confusion of the mental state or the physical compromises, you have to say, well, okay, well, I have to be gracious with myself. I'm going to be slower and weirder. <laughs> so uh, Maybe I'm not going to dye my hair purple to kind of announce to the world that I'm, uh, and, and it, I'm in this phase. But I think we do really have to be so very creative at this age. And I don't think, I think that the, the primary takeaway from our time when I consulted with you was, I need to be creative and progressive and I need to persevere and I need to, you know, it's like, I need to, whatever that is, I need to fill in the blank. I just need to do it. We're going to keep and, on moving. And you said it very well a moment ago, Carol, you know, that to be gentle with yourself, mm -hmm. that if there's a moment of embarrassment because you're not able to do what you used to be able to do, or because somebody will help you, you know, get out of a chair or somebody will help you with something that ordinarily you could do yourself, that you're gentle with yourself about it mm. rather than harshly critical. It's mm. that self-criticism, the relationship you have with yourself that is so very, very powerful. Because of my back issues, for example, I now have to be careful about lifting things. So we were traveling yes, yes. as a family and our adult son wanted to help me with some of the luggage you know, and my first instinct was, I can do this. You know, I don't need your help. Thank you very much. You're snickety. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and then my second, my second thought was, wait a moment. He's being generous. He's wanting to be of help, you know, and, and perhaps prevent, you know, some strain and even an injury of some sort. So I just stepped back and said, thank you. That's really nice of you. Yeah. And, and he took care of a lot of the luggage instead of my having to do it. So yeah small example of being gentle with myself and being flexible, yeah. making, making that change. Thanks for your authenticity as always. And thank you for sharing these tidbits and be fascinating to see how people react. So folks write me at drcarolfrancis at gmail.com contact Dr. Solomon at do it again. www.therapynla.com. And just let us know what tidbits and lessons you've gotten out of this discussion and then what ones you have to offer to make us all wiser thank you so much dr solomon oh thank you for giving me the opportunity it's a pleasure to have this dialogue with you <laughs> likewise cheers bye folks